Okay, that's enough for, for announcements this morning. Let's go to 2 Kings chapter number 13. 2 Kings chapter number 13. And when you find it, let's go ahead and stand together. We started about three minutes late this morning, so if we go three minutes late, it's not my fault, okay? If we go over three minutes, well, then it is my fault, okay? Uh, and it usually is. 2 Kings chapter number 13, very interesting passage of scripture here. And I don't have the time to read all of that, uh, but I'm going to try to skip through it real quick as we read about a very interesting account uh, with a man by the name of Joash. And uh, boy, what a, what a wonderful account here, but also a very sobering account that God wants us to apply to our lives today. And I pray that you'll allow the Lord to do that. We're going to pick up in chapter 13 of 2 Kings. And uh, let's just read, skip over a little bit about Joash. Uh, the Bible says in verse number 2, you can see a little bit about how he ruled. The Bible says, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin he departed not therefrom. So when he had an opportunity to lead, he just did what everybody else did, followed in that line of succession of doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 3, the Bible says God's anger was kindled against them for that. By the way, God's anger is still kindled against those who do evil in the sight of the Lord. And yes, that's not just the lost world, that's his people, all right? Understand that this morning. Look down to verse 4, the Bible says, He besought the Lord, the Lord hearkened unto him, for he saw the oppression of Israel. Aren't you glad God looks down and God sees the tough time we're going through, even when it was self-inflicted? Yes. You know, a majority of my struggles are not from satanic attack, they're self-inflicted. Most of my struggle are because of me. All right, keep reading. Watch verse 5, you see the goodness of God. The Lord gave Israel a Savior. I'm so thankful that we have a God who hears our cries. But then watch verse 6. Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who made Israel to sin. Do you not see you and I there this morning? We sin, we get in trouble, we cry out to God, God gives us deliverance, and then we turn right back to the things that got us in trouble. Verse 7, neither did he leave of the people to Jehoahaz, but 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. Their army had been shrank down. Well, let's get on to the message this morning. Now we have a little bit of background. Let's look down, if we could, to verse number 14. The Bible says, now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. If you recall, that's what was said when Elijah died. Elisha was there. Verse 15, and Elisha said, or not die, I was taken to heaven. Don't correct me after the service, okay? Verse 15, and Elisha said unto him, take bow and arrows, and he took unto him bow and arrows. It's kind of interesting. Here's Elisha sick, and he said, all right, I want you to go and get you a bow and arrow and some arrows. What is he going to do with that? Well, watch verse 16. He said to the king of Israel, put thine hand upon the bow, and he put his hand upon it. Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elisha said, shoot. He wasn't saying shoot. He was saying fire the bow, okay? You're thinking, well, what was he mad about? No, he's just saying shoot the bow, okay? He's like, I feel like Elijah right there. I say shoot all the time. And shot, and he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou hast consumed them. So basically, he's making an illustration. He says, fire that arrow out the window eastward towards Syria. And it's just an example, kind of an analogy, if you will, 
of the victory God's going to give them. Verse number 17 says, till thou have consumed them. Then watch verse 18. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice. Watch the last part of verse 18. And stayed. The man of God was wroth with him. That means extremely angry. And said, thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. Now we're probably wondering this morning, what does that mean? Well, I think the Lord's going to help us this morning. Let's pray and ask him to do just that. Father, thank you for your word. And there's a lot here. A lot, a lot in my heart. A lot on my mind. But Father, I, I pray that I'd only say what you want said. Well, this is not my pulpit. This is yours. This is your church, your people. This is your word. I want to say what you would have me to. Now, Lord, I pray we'd open our hearts this morning to receive the message you've sent. Lord, there's something here for all of us today. I pray the lost would be challenged, and I pray, Lord, the saved would be burdened, Lord, uh, to fulfill your will in the service today. Bless the invitation to come in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Throughout the course of, of the week, I, I do a lot of reading. And um, sometimes run across people that maybe I haven't heard of before. Uh, I ran across an old preacher from the late 1800s this week by the name of Philip Brooks. I was reading a story about Philip Brooks and his character and his testimony. And he he was known as a mild-mannered man, meaning outside of the pulpit, uh, he was kind of a quiet man, a very reserved man. The story goes that one day a neighbor looked out and saw Philip Brooks, the pastor, pacing in his backyard, which was very out of character for him. Uh, He's a very patient man, very wise man, very quiet man, and yet the neighbor watched him pacing back and forth, and you could tell there was a great frustration on Philip Brooks' face, and so the neighbor went over and asked him, he says, Philip, what is the matter? He said, I've never seen you this way, pacing back and forth. And Philip Brooks looked up at him, and he says, well, here's the truth of the matter, if I must be honest. I'm in a hurry, but God is not. I thought about that this week. I said, boy, I could relate to that. Oftentimes in my life, I'm in a hurry, but God's not, or vice versa. God wants me to be in a hurry, and I'm not in a hurry. Now, I would say this morning that even the most seasoned Christian in this room this morning has dealt with that battle to where maybe God wants us to be in more of a hurry, and and we're holding back, or maybe God wants us to be still and know that he is God, and we're wanting to know the answer right now, and When to rush and when to wait is something that I don't know that we'll ever get right all of the time. And all of God's people said, amen. I rush when he doesn't want me to rush. I wait when he doesn't want me to wait. And I want you to understand this morning, understanding God's timeline is something we have to figure out through the discernment of the Holy Spirit of God. It's a spiritual thing to learn patience. It's a spiritual thing to be motivated by the will of God for your life. And I think about this theme this year of being ready. Being ready is obviously a long-term project. You're not going to come to church today and get everything you need to be ready to be used to the Lord for the rest of your life. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice, kind of like a Walmart, a one-stop shop where you can get breads and tires and ammunition all at the same store? Oh, it's not going to happen that way. You're not going to come here today and be getting ready all at one time, prepared for the Lord. Now, you can be ready by being saved all at one time, amen? That happens in the twinkling of an eye. As soon as you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are saved, you are sealed, you are born again, and when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, you're ready for that. 
But this morning, you're not going to be ready for his service in an instant. You're going to have to work at it over a long period of time. But here's what I want you to think about this morning. Even though it's going to take time, there's really no time to waste. We don't have time to wait to get ready. Jesus is going to come back way sooner than you realize. I think the coming of our Lord is way closer than we think this morning. And I think we think we have time, but the truth of the matter is this morning, this is something we need to be hurrying about. Uh, Working down our list of the fruits of the Spirit and uh, the armor of God and walking with God, being a witness for God. Those are things we can't afford to wait. We've got to be in a hurry about becoming ready to be used of God till he comes. It's like the African proverb. I think I've told you this before. Uh, I've been to Africa, and I've been on a safari down through the savannah. Uh, there at Murchison Falls in Uganda, and across the Nile River, and saw the great trains of, of giraffes and gazelles and all the things that were out there. Just an amazing sight to behold. And the African proverb says that every morning a gazelle wakes up knowing he's got to be faster than the fastest lion out there. He knows that if he's going to survive... He's got to be faster than the fastest lion. Every morning in Africa, the lion wakes up. And the lion knows he's got to be faster than the slowest gazelle. So whether you're the lion or whether you're the gazelle, you know you've got to wake up on the run. Why? That's the only way you're going to survive. Now, I think, look, even though we're talking about lions and gazelles, I think that applies to the saved people this morning. Look, every morning we wake up, look, whether you're a preacher or a Sunday school teacher or whether you're just a Christian plumber or a Christian electrician, every one of us have got to wake up every morning on the run. What are we trying to run after? To get ready. There's ground to cover. There's a job to do. Hebrews 12 says there's a race to run. I don't know about you. I've never run a race walking. Now, I know there's some weird folks out there who do that speed walking. Number one, it looks weird. I'm just going to tell you straight off. It, if you do that, I, don't get mad at me. It just looks weird. People half running, half walking. Can I tell you, it looks weird for Christians too. We're supposed to be running a race. Look, there is a prize that we are pressing toward the mark, and a lot of us need to get a move on. A lot of us aren't in any hurry. A lot of us are acting like we've got all the time in the world, and the truth of the matter is this morning we don't. The opportunity to get ready has an expiration date. You know, I I like to eat. I love food. I really do. I'm thankful for food. It's not just nourishment for me, but I actually enjoy eating. Don't you? Some of you, whoo, some of you just lied by not amening, okay? Some of you enjoy food more than you just let on to everybody, all right? I enjoy food. But, you know, food has a best if used by date on it. Ever seen that? Maybe you only eat fresh food, they don't have any stamps on it, but I eat stuff out of boxes. And on those boxes, it has best if used by. The other day, I had a couple of our teen guys, they were in my office, we're talking about planning an event for our men and our boys, and uh, while they're sitting there talking, I decided I was going to get a a, a tube of Pringles. I found Taki-flavored Pringles. Anybody ever had Takis? It's like battery acid-flavored chips is what it is. That's what it does to your esophagus and your guts. I mean, you're going to have ulcers from it, but man, they are good uh, on the way down. And I I pulled out that tube of Pringles. Uh, I pulled one out, stuck it in my mouth, and I crunched down. And I had not even fully crunched yet. And I can tell these were past their best if used by date. It was horrible. There is nothing worse than a stale chip. 
I, 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 guys, I apologize for it. I immediately spun around in my chair, opened the garbage can, and spit it out. I regretted as soon as I put it in my mouth. Why? It was stale. The opportunity for those Takis was gone. And they ended up in the garbage. Now, look, uh, now sometimes, look, if you're really poor, you're going to have to eat stale chips. Uh, but I had some others that weren't stale, so those went in the garbage. Why? The opportunity had passed. You see, I had them, and they were good, and I could have taken advantage of that. And there was a time that they were ready to be eaten, but now that time for readiness had passed. Do you know this morning the opportunity to get ready has a best if used by date on it? The opportunity for you and I to get the fruits of the Spirit in our life, the armor of God in our life, the power of God in our life, the opportunity is not going to be here forever. And sooner or later, you're going to look back like I did on those chips. You're going to regret waiting so long to take advantage of them. Do you know there's a fine line between opportunity and regret? Fine line. Do you know what that line's made out of? Motivation. If you're not motivated, that opportunity will quickly come to regret. And this morning, I believe we as the people of God aren't very motivated to get ready. We know Jesus is coming. We know that we're saved. We know that we're going when he comes. But we are not ready to be used of God. We don't have the tools that God's given us to be used of him until he comes. And this morning, here's what I believe. I think we need to get in a rush to get ready. And that's what I'm going to preach on today. The rush to get ready. It's time that we as God's people got motivated about what God's called us to do or else one day Jesus is going to come back and you know what's going to happen? We're going to regret not taking advantage of the opportunity that we have. Now this story here, quite interesting. Boy, there's a lot to unfold here. But I believe God could show us something that will help us today if we'll allow the Holy Spirit to work through his word. So what's happening in 2 Kings 13? Well, if you look down at verse 13, the Bible says, or verse 14, Elisha had fallen sick. Now, Elisha was the man of God, the prophet of God who had the obvious and evident power of God on his life. Watch this, a double portion of what Elijah had. I mean, Elisha did great things through the power of God in his life. So now here comes the king running to Elisha. He hears that he's sick, and he's kind of worried. Why? Well, notice what he says. Look down, if you will, verse 14, the very end of it. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Elisha had been the defender of the people of God. Elisha had been the one who was the power of God and the mediator between God's people. He was the man who stood up for God's people. Now he's about to die. And the king's kind of worried. And he goes to him and he says, look, he says uh, he's lamenting that he's dying. So then watch what Elisha does. He comforts him. Verse 16, watch what he tells him. Verse 15, Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows, and he took unto him bow and arrows. Now, can you imagine, here you are worried about Elisha dying. Elisha's on his deathbed, says, go get a bow and go get an arrow, and get some arrows. They kind of think, well, that's kind of weird, you know. You know, I, I'm here worried about you and the future of our country, and you tell me to get a bow and arrow. By the way, it doesn't matter whatever God tells you. No matter how much you think it's weird, just be obedient to it. Watch what he says. Verse number 16, and he said to the king of Israel, put thine hand upon the bow. This is important. Don't miss this. He put his hand upon it. Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. Now notice at the end, the Bible says in verse number 17, till thou have consumed them. Now God, through Elisha, was telling the king of how he could have victory. He was telling him 
There's no need to worry. There's no need to fret that the God of heaven is still there. Whether Elisha was there or not, God wanted to give them victory. And God begins showing him exactly what he needs to do in order to have what he needs, watch, to be ready for the Syrians. The king's worried. Are we going to be able to, I mean, what did he say? If you look down to verse number uh, Verse number 7, neither did he leave of the people of Jehoahaz, but 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 footmen. He says, we don't have much of an army. And, and look, you're fixing to die. We're going to be in a whole heap of trouble. Elisha says, don't worry. God wants you to consume them all. Here's how you're going to do it. Now, this morning, he's trying to motivate him. I want you to notice the first thing he's using to motivate him, and that's the offer that God made. Notice, number one this morning, the offer that God made. God's trying to reassure them that they can be ready when the Syrians come. Now, I can't, I can't skip over this this morning. Can you not see the mercy and grace of God? Here they are. They've been wicked and rebellious. They do not deserve to be delivered. And yet God says, in spite of all that you've done, I'm going to have mercy on you, and I'm going to give you the power to defeat the enemy that's going to come. I'm going to make a way so that you can be ready. I'm so thankful today that's the very same God we are serving here today. The very same God, watch this, who knows, as she sang about him a moment ago, how many times I've let him down. He picks me up, I let him down. He picks me up, I let him down. I'm thankful for the mercy and the grace of God that in spite of myself and in spite of you, watch this, God still wants to deliver us. And God still wants us to be ready. By the way, do you know what Jesus was all about? You're like salvation. Watch, Jesus was a loving God doing what needed to be done so that you could be ready for eternity. Do you see that? Man, in spite of the fact that we would be the cause that Jesus was crucified, he sent him anyway. Why? Because he wanted us to be ready. Do you know, by the way, that's why we have a Bible. Why has this book been preserved undoubtedly with the hand of God all through the ages? It's because you have a God that wants you to be ready. All right, you can't say, God, we're just kind of trying to figure out what you want us to do until you come back. No, he preserved for us his word. Why? Because he wants us to be ready. By the way, that's why God gave us a church. Aren't you thankful for a good church? Look, you could amen that. I didn't say, aren't you thankful for a good preacher? I said, aren't you thankful for a good church? Good Sunday school teachers? Good folks to go to church with? Do you know why God gave us the church? Because he's a loving God that wants us to be ready. And he shows us exactly how to be ready. Now, this is the important part you got to see today. He tells him in verse 16, and he said to the king of Israel, put thy hand upon the bow. Now, he's outlining this process. Now, I'm just being honest with you. If I'm Joash, I'm thinking, what does this have to do with anything? Here I am. I have a minimal army. You're about to die, and I'm going to be left holding the bag, and you want me to get a a bow and an arrow? Yeah, that's exactly what the man of God said. Go get a bow and go get some arrows. Now, understand this. God's will will be accomplished God's way. If God says get a bow, go get a bow. God says get some arrows, go get some arrows. Look, don't try to figure it out. Just trust God. Now, here's what I want you to see. I told my wife yesterday. I don't know that I've ever read 2 Kings 13 and seen it like I I saw it as we were preparing for this message. The Bible says, put thine hand 
upon the bow. All right? So Elijah says, here's what you do. Here's what you do. Put your hand on the bow. And so in obedience, Joash puts his hand on the bow. But then watch what happens after that. Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. All right, watch this. Don't miss this today, okay? What God was offering him was a partnership. You put your hands on it, then I'll put my hands on it. Now you say, what was Elijah's hand? Elisha was working for the Lord. If you keep on reading, the Bible says it's the Lord's arrow. In verse 17, the arrow of the Lord. This was not Elisha's arrow. This was not Elisha's bow. This is representing God's hand. And he says, Joash, you put your hand on the bow. And then all of a sudden, here comes the man of God and puts his hand on the bow. Don't miss this. Your hand, then God's hand. There was a partnership. Watch this. Your obedience and God's omnipotent. All right? But it began, if we wanted the power of God and the hand of God, he had to put his hand on the bow first. Now, here's what I'm afraid of this morning. I'm afraid this morning that we long for the hand of God in America. We long for the hand of God in our home. God help my marriage. God help my children. God help our church. God help our city. And we long for the hand of God. Oh, that God would put his hand on our bow to shoot that arrow straight. And God desires that. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want your home to break up. God doesn't want you to lose your children. The problem is we want God's hand and we've not given him ours. He says, put your hand on there first. God says, it's through your obedience that you find mine omnipotence. That's the power of God. Here we are begging God. God, we need your hand in America today. And oh, how God wants to. Do you think God is sitting up in heaven looking down at America saying, yeah, they're getting what they deserve? No. I believe God is brokenhearted. I believe God is grieved this morning at all of the innocent children that are being slaughtered through abortion. How many homes are being destroyed through rebellion and not acknowledging God in their life. And it grieves the heart of God and breaks the heart of God and how he wants to put his hand on it. The problem is we can't have his omnipotence if we don't first have our obedience. He says, put your hands on it first. Can you imagine, watch this, Joash saying, I'm not doing that, that's weird. I'm asking for an army and you want me to put my hand on a bow? Look, it doesn't matter how weird you think it is. Going to church all the time is weird. Reading your Bible all the time is weird. Praying all the time is weird. Raising your kids by the word of God, that's weird. Doesn't matter how weird you think it is this morning, if you want God's hand, you've got to give him yours. Put your hand on the bow and then let God follow. I'll give you an example, Psalm 78, 41. The Bible says, <clears throat> yea, speaking of the children of Israel, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Now watch this. If there's one thing you don't want to do in your life, we don't want to do in this church. You don't want to do with your kids. You don't want to do in your marriage. It's limit the Holy One of Israel. You don't want to limit God in your home. You want all of God that you can get, amen. You want, look, you want it pressed down, shaken together, and running over. That's how much of the presence of God and the hand of God you want in your home. But the Bible says they limited God. That means they limited the hand of God in their life. How did they do that? Yea, they turned back. They're the ones who took their hand off the bow. You know, 
I, I love to bow hunt. I love to shoot a bow. I haven't shot in a while, but I love shooting bow, even for, for recreation. It's just a fun pastime to do. Miley was a kid. We got her a little bow, and she would get out there and shoot bows with us. We'd have a good time with that. And uh, There were times Miley had her little bow and be out there shooting, and, man, she's trying to pull it back, and she's doing like this, and all of us took cover, you know? <laughs> I didn't want her mama to get hit. I didn't want to get hit, you know? And she's just trying to pull that bow back, trying to get it where it's going. Look, forget hitting the target. We just didn't want anybody to lose an eyeball, you know. Uh, what a horrible thing that would be. So finally, I would walk up behind Miley. And I said, all right, Miley, you're going to hold here. And then I would take my hand and put my hand on hers. And I would help her pull back that bow. And when I put my hands on it, boy, it shot a whole lot straighter. She even hit the target a few times. You say, well, it wasn't her shooting. It didn't matter. It still hit the target. Can I tell you? we got to get over ourselves. Thinking we don't need God. You know what? Look, that's why, our, that's why we're shooting out crooked arrows of children and crooked homes and crooked churches because we think we don't need the hand of God. No, we've got to have our obedience in order to access God's omnipotence. And oh, when we put our hands on the bow and then God comes and puts his hands over ours, you'd be amazed at how straight you could shoot. The problem is we're trying to do this without God. I read a poem a few weeks ago and uh, boy, it was on my heart this week. And I, don't, I don't read a lot of long things behind the pulpit, but I want you to hear this. 1908, a lady by the name of Minnie Louise Haskins wrote a poem entitled God Knows. 1908, she wrote this poem, going into the new year, looking forward into the unknown, and the poem was entitled God Knows. Uh, several years later, I think maybe 1939, uh, a young girl, 13 years old, who would later be Queen Elizabeth, would read that poem. She was so impressed by the poem, she took it to her dad. Her dad at the time was the king, King George. She took the poem to her dad and she says, Dad, what a wonderful poem this is about looking forward and things we don't know that God knows. Her dad read it and he was so impressed by it, he decided to read it over the Christmas broadcast uh, on that Christmas Eve, 1939. Let me read for you the opening lines of this. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, speaking of looking into a new year and the unknowns, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. So I went forth and finding the hand of God, trod gladly into the night. Queen Elizabeth would use that poem as her motivation, as part of her motivation, all throughout her reign as queen. As a matter of fact, the words of that poem are emblazoned upon plaques entering into uh, where her family is buried. Did you hear that one line? She was asking for a light to tread into the unknown. Oh, can I tell you, I like having lights when I go into dark places. Uh, I may be 43 years old, but I would way rather walk with a light than walk in the darkness. I'm not too prideful, all right? I'm not scared of the dark, but I'm scared of things in the dark, right? Spiders, creepers, you know, it doesn't matter. Wookalars could be in there. Who knows what's in there? Something that's gonna, something's going to eat you, all right? There's nothing ever good in the dark, okay? It's always bad stuff. And she says, give me a light. I want a light as we lead into the unknown of the year. And the keeper of the year says, you don't need a light. Walk straight out into the darkness. Find the hand of God. For that's better than a light or a known way. Can I tell you something this morning? That's what we need today. Look, we don't need another book written on how to raise our children. We don't need another book on how to build a church. What we need this morning is simply to find the hand of God and walk with it. Why? Because when the hand of God is there, that's where our victory comes from. 
You don't look, don't think for a second you can shoot that bow straight without God. There's no way you can raise these kids right without God. You need your hand on it through obedience, and that's when God steps in with his omnipotence. That's his power. Notice the offer that he made. We're going we're gonna to hurry. He says, all right, you put your hands on it, then I'll put my hands on it, all right? His hands for ours. We put ours, he gives us theirs. Now, I want you to think about how many times in Scripture the hand of God was motivating for people. Nehemiah chapter 2, here he is about to rebuild this mess of a wall. So Nehemiah goes to these people. Nehemiah says, all right, we're going to rebuild this wall. God's called us to rebuild this wall. What did he tell them that motivated them? I told them, verse 18, Nehemiah chapter 2, of the hand of my God that was good upon me. Nehemiah didn't say, look, I've measured this thing out and I've talked with all the structural engineers and I think we can do this probably in six months if we work really hard, 12-hour shifts, 500 people. No, he didn't say that. He says, I think we can do it because the hand of my God, which is good upon me. Can I tell you, that's all that you need to walk into the darkness and the unknown of this world is to find the hand of God that through obedience you do what thus saith the Lord and then you trust God to do what only God could do. Number one, the offer that God made was his hand for ours. There was a little boy walking out of his house. They lived up north where it was cold during the winter and there's a lot of ice. And walking out of the house, he had a brand new jacket on. He walks out, it was cold, so he puts his hands in his pockets and is walking along with his dad. Maybe, well, I don't know if he's walking down to grandma's house and had his hands in his pockets. And the dad said, son, he said that the, 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 the air's cold, the, the ground is frozen, there's going to be ice along the sidewalk, give me your hand. The boy says, it's too cold. Take my hands out of my pockets. He says, I'll be fine, Dad. I'll be fine. So he's walking along, and all of a sudden he hit a, a, a patch of ice, and he slipped, but he caught himself. And his dad said, son, give me your hand. And the boy said, no, it's too cold. I'm going to keep my hands in my pockets. Walking along a little while later, hit another patch of ice, almost fell down, but caught himself. His dad said, son, give me your hand. Give me your hand. The son says, no, Dad, I'm fine. I'll be okay. I can take care of myself. A few minutes before they got to grandma's house, they hit a patch of ice and he started doing the cartoon shuffle, you know, where you're slipping on ice like Bambi out there on the, the pond and this time he couldn't catch himself. He hit the ground, bumped his noggin, bruised his rear, he laid there on the ice, looked up at his dad and he said these words, I'll take your hand now. I'll take your hand now. How many times in our life do we have to get bruised and bumped? Our family, family bruised and bumped. We think, I'm going to catch myself. I can take care of myself. I can look after myself. I'll promise you, there's an ice patch waiting on you. It's going to lay you flat of your spiritual back. Your family's going to be on their back. Your marriage is going to be on its back. Your testimony's going to be on its back. And finally, we look up and we say, okay, God, I'm going to take your hand. Can I tell you, you don't have to wait until you fall. You can accept the offer of God where God says, hey, you put your hands and then I'll put my hands. Miley, come up here for a second. I did ask her and she said she didn't mind, all right? Don't think I'm picking on my kid. Hurry, 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 all right? Jesus is coming back and want to make sure I get through the message so that we can go with him, all right? I'd like to finish all this that I worked on. This is my daughter and I enjoy holding the hand of my daughter, all right? We hold it a lot of places. Uh, we go to the mall, we hold hands. We're at the hospital, we hold hands. I love it when I'm walking along and she comes behind and takes me by the hand, all right? I know it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. I'm the only guy she's ever hold hands, right? 
All right, I'll be walking along, walking along, and look, I know to leave, I know to leave this hang dangling. I know to leave it dangling because she's going to come. I know it. All right, if she's, we're in Walmart. There's some weird people in Walmart, all right? She wants to stay close to dad. So it's me and Leslie and my walking together, all right? So I want you to see something. Something amazing happens. Walking along, watch what she does, all right? Watch it. Did you see what just happened? Don't miss this. As soon as she gave me hers, she got mine. Do you see it? As soon as she gave me hers, she got mine. It happened simultaneously. That's the way your father wants it to be. You give him yours, you get his. And here we are, we're sitting back and we're begging, God, God, we want your hand. God, we want your hand in our life, in our home, with our children. God says, give me your hand and you get mine. Thank you, you can go sit down, I appreciate that. Listen to me this morning. God wants to have his hand in your life. God wants to put his hands on your home. Notice, if you will, look down real quickly. Verse 16, we're going to hurry. He said unto the king of Israel, put thy hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. Wouldn't you love to have God's hands on yours? Wouldn't you love to know as you're raising your kids, God's hands are on yours? Oh, what a scary thought to think that I've got to shoot this arrow straight. No, no, no. All I've got to do is be obedient, and God puts his hands on mine. That's the offer that God makes to us today. Number one, notice the offer that God made. You ought to, look, you ought to rush to get ready. Why? Because God's making an offer to you. You put your hands, he'll give you his hands. I love reading after Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I have a lot of his books and sermons in my office. The Metropolitan Tabernacle that Spurgeon would preach at would seat over 6,000 people. I cannot imagine preaching to 6,000 people. Spurgeon would do that each and every week, multiple times a week, preached around the world. He had so much experience in preaching, and yet one day, the story is told, he stood back behind the scenes getting ready to come out on the platform, and a gentleman heard him utter these words, Oh, God, help. What a beautiful picture that with all the experience and all the knowledge, he knew he could not do it without God's hand. Number one this morning... You ought to rush to get ready because of God's offer. You give him your hand, God will give you his quickly. Look what the Bible says next. Verse 17, he said, open the window, fire it. So he did just that. But then he tells him to do something in verse 18 that you've got to see today, okay? We'll go over a little bit, but I'll let you out early tonight. So we'll get the time swap for time. Verse 18, he said, take the arrows. And he took them. He said unto the king of Israel, smite upon the ground, and he smote thrice, and then the watch of the Bible says he did. He stayed. So God wants you to be ready. You put your hands on the bow, he'll put his hands on the bow. But it continues the illustration with arrows. Now obviously God wants to give them victory, but we can tell something goes wrong here. So how do you know that? Because verse 19 says the man of God was wroth. So here's what he told him. I brought an arrow from my, my quiver uh, today at the house. He says, I I want you to take those arrows, and I want you to smite them on the ground, all right? So take the arrows. The king knew this was an illustration. The king knew that what he was doing was an example of something that God wanted to do. So he says, all right, shoot the arrow out the window. Shot the arrow out the window. All right, now take some arrows and smite them on the ground. Now, we can't judge the king's heart here, but obviously what he was doing was just going through the motions. Stick with me, okay? Elisha says, smite them on the ground. So he goes, all right, I did it. All right, I did it. The Bible says the king was wroth. Why? Because number two, I want you to notice he took the option of being minimal. 
the optional of being minimal. Now, please stick with me here. God is about to use how many times he smacks that arrow to be how many victories that he has over Syria. And so all that he has to do, I mean, look, if God's wanting him to give victory, he should just sit there all day long. That's how bad I want that victory. I want to beat them boys to where they never, ever, ever even think about coming back. But here's what he did. He just did the minimal. All right. I went through the motions. I did what I needed to do. Can I tell you what that is a picture of? It's a picture of God giving him the opportunity to be ready. And then him just doing the bare minimal to get by. I think you see a picture of the church today, don't we? What are we doing? We ask for the mighty hand from God, and we offer a minimal hand to God. God wants to do mighty things for us, and we just barely do what we need to do to get by. Can I tell you, you're going to miss out on all the opportunity to be ready this morning just doing the minimal. You look at the church in America today. We just do what's minimal. We just come to church on a minimal basis. We read our Bible on a minimal basis. We live for God on a minimal basis. And we wonder why we don't have mighty things happen. It's because we offer minimal obedience to God. All right. All right. You told me to do it. I did it. Went to church today. All right. I read through my Bible this year. All right. Got it done. We're just doing the minimal. Just doing enough to say we did. And then we're wondering, God, where are you? God says you want mighty and you offer minimal? You want the mighty hand of God in your home and in your children's life? God, help our kids. I read something in my Sunday school class this morning. One of our members gave me about this satanic club. It's an after-school club of Satan at schools. They have beautiful little pamphlets printed up. Don't you know this morning that the devil wants his hands on our kids worse than you do? I mean, the devil's fighting hard. And here we are thinking, I'm just going to do the minimal and hope that works. It's not going to work. You're not going to win the battle that way. The option of being minimal is not an option at all. As a matter of fact, it's basically like the church of Laodicea. Doing what's minimal, that's lukewarm. <clears throat> I don't know if your stove is this way, but if you walk by the stove in your house, it has those little knobs on it. Be sure you turn them off before you come to church. And it's got min and max. Now, some of you never knew what that meant. All right, it means minimal. It means maximal. So there, you're going to leave here with something today. You're going to learn something. Amen. All right. Hey, if you can learn it, learn it. That minimal setting on our stove, watch this, it just keeps things warm. It's the bare minimal and keeping it warm. You know what God says about the bare minimum of being lukewarm? Revelation 3.15, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Do you know what a lukewarm church does? The bare minimal. I'm going to come on a bare minimal basis. I'm going to be faithful on a bare minimal basis. I, I'm going to be obedient to the will of God on a bare minimal way. I'm going to stand on a bare minimal way uh, 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 with God, our obedience to God. And then we're going to do this. God, help us. God, send revival. God sits up and says, you're asking for the mighty hand, but you're offering a minimal hand. God says no. Matter of fact, look at what Elijah felt like. Verse 19, this is what God feels like. Man of God was wroth. Wroth. You know what the word wroth means? It means displeased and grieved. Displeased and grieved. Do you know? Well, folks, look, I, I'm right here with you. God is displeased and grieved every time he gives his people opportunity. 
and they do the bare minimal. God says, I gave you every opportunity to be ready, and you did the bare minimal. Understand something. If you'll notice at the end of verse 18, you're going to see what the mistake he made. And he smote thrice. Watch this. God put these two words in there on purpose, and stayed. Watch. That means he held back. I mean, he could have sat down there and said, I don't like those Syrians. I'm going to beat down those Syrians. But he's like, okay, I did it. I, I did what you told me. I went through the motions. Do it. All right, where's God? I did what you told me. We just went through the motions. The Bible says he stayed or watch, he held back. Can I ask you something this morning? Why are you holding back in your obedience to God? Why are you holding back? Now look. We know the consequences about what his minimal obedience is going to be. We know it. It's not good. This morning, could I ask you this? For whatever reason you're holding back of being all in with God, instead of just getting by with the minimal, is whatever reason you're holding back, can I ask you, is it worth what you're missing from God? Is holding back and just doing the All right, I did it. I checked my box, read my Bible. Is doing the minimal... Is it worth what you're missing? You know, I, I wonder why we hold back on church attendance. Well, I hold back because i got this to do and that to do, and I hold back because this person made me mad and this person hurt my feelings. Look, I get it. I know people hurt people's feelings. I hurt people's feelings. I apologize for it, but I do sometimes. You hurt people's feelings. But I want you to know my feelings are not worth missing out on what God wants to do in my life i got to say, you know what, well, they hurt me, so I'm just going to do the bare minimal. Hey, I don't care how bad they hurt me, that's not worth missing out on what God wants to give me. That's not worth the victory that God wants me to give. Hey, God wants to beat the devil out of your family. God wants to consume him to get him totally out where your family's not racked by that anymore. And we're just thinking, I'm going to do the bare minimum. Why? Because I don't like the preacher. Sometimes I don't like me either. But I want you to know, not liking me is no reason to miss out on what God wants to do. It ain't worth it. He can say, well, you know what, I think this is stupid. All right, there I did it. All right, you can think it's stupid all day long, but your opinion is keeping you from what God wants you to have. It ain't worth it. I wouldn't let anybody keep me from having what God wants me to have. I wouldn't let anybody keep me from holding back. No, I'd go all in for God today. Why? Because I need the victory that bad. The Syrians have been a plague to God's people for too long. And he says, here's how you're going to beat them. Number two, the option of being minimal. Nehemiah went up on the wall. He was ridiculed. But what did he say? I can't come down. Well, I'll tell you, folks. You have a pastor that is very much in touch with his feelings. Sometimes they get hurt. And, man, you just want to give up and you want to quit, don't you? All of us do. Nehemiah says, I don't care what the enemy's saying, what the enemies do. I'm not coming down. It's not worth holding back and missing out on what God wants to do. You ought to decide this morning, there is nothing keeping me from coming down off the wall. I want to see what God wants to do. Jeremiah quit preaching for a little while, and he says, all right, I'm going to stop. I've been faithful, and all that happened to me was bad. You ever feel like that? Yeah. After a while, he says, I could not forbear. I couldn't hold back anymore. He said, there was a fire in my bones. He says, I can't hold back. I can't just do what's minimal. I've got to be all in for God. Folks, that's when God's going to bless America again. When God's people quit holding back and get all in in the will of God for their life. We've got to hurry, but I want you to understand. Listen, you can't expect God's might when offering your minimal. Don't expect God's might and all for you. Offer him as, all right, God, I'm going to give you this. All right, went through the motions. No, it's not going to work that way. 
Number two, we see the option of being minimal. He just did what he did. The Bible says the man of God was wroth. Now, watch this, and we're going to close. The Bible says in verse 19, the man of God was wroth with him and said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria. So here we are. We're going to close with this. Why should you rush to get ready? Well, number one, it's because of the offer that God made. You put your hand on it, God's going to put his hands on it. And oh, God can shoot a straight arrow. But you ought to rush to get ready because you understand this minimum is not an option. Either you're hot or you're cold. Get in, get out. So we can get on with the will of God for our lives. But watch this. If that's not enough, the third reason is heartbreaking. Verse 19 says, and I want you to see these two words. These are some of the most heartbreaking words in Scripture. Thou shouldest. Watch. You had the opportunity and you missed it. You missed it. You had the opportunity to have victory. You had the opportunity to be ready for the Syrian. You had it. It was, it was right there in your hands. You had it. And you chose the minimal option. So finally, watch. I want you to see why you ought to rush to get ready. Number three, I want you to notice the opportunity that was missed. The opportunity that was missed. Those two words ought to echo in our mind this morning in verse 19. Thou shouldest. You know what he said? You should have done more. You should have done more. It was within your power. It was within your hand. You could have done more. You should have done more. And because you didn't do more, you just missed your opportunity. Syria would be a thorn in their side because he did not take full advantage of the opportunity that God gave him. I'm just going to do the minimal. All right, there, I did it. I want to tell you, the minimal ain't going to cut it with the Syrians. What's coming for your home and your children and this church, look, minimal ain't going to cut it. We need a victory. Watch what verse, watch what verse number 15 or verse 17 says, till thou hast consumed them. That's the kind of victory we need here today. What does God offer us? Well, he op- offered them an opportunity for victory. Look, this morning, there's not a person in here who cannot leave here with victory. If you're lost, you can leave here with the victory over sin that Christ has already won for you. You can leave here with victory today. He offers that to you. That's God's offer. God says, I want to give you the victory, just like he wanted to give Joash the victory. Here, here it is. I want to give it to you. You can leave here with victory. Hey, if you're saved, but maybe you don't have victory over sin, maybe you don't have victory over your thoughts, maybe you don't have victory over habits in your life, you can leave with victory over that. God has given you that opportunity. But can I tell you why we leave here losers? We leave here losers because we let the opportunity pass. We miss out on what God wanted us to have. I want to say something to our church specifically this morning. We have a week of service coming up this week starting tomorrow going through next week. I'm looking forward to what God wants to do. But do you know what's going to motivate me as we go out and have this week of service? I don't want to get to the end of next week and God says, thou shouldest. You could have done more. All right, you, you passed out a gospel track. You went and gave some cookies to the cops. Could you have done more? Could I ask you something? Look, we're going into the week of service. Could we not just go ahead and start asking the question, could I do more than I'm already planning on doing? Because right now, we have the opportunity to do more. One day, we're going to stand before God, and we're going to hear this. Thou shouldest. You could have done more. I want you to notice one phrase, and we'll close. He says, thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Watch this. Then hadst 
thou smitten Syria. I want you to think about it this way. Thou shouldest so that thou could haveest. You know why we don't have? Because we didn't do what we could. He says, if you, you, you could have had this. You could have had victory and smitten them until they were consumed. You could have had that. He says, but when I gave you opportunity, you didn't do what you should have done. He says, you could have done more. I don't know where you're at today in your walk with God. I don't know if you're saved. Only you and the Holy Spirit know that. But if I was lost here today and God gave me the opportunity which he freely gives, I'd rush to get ready. I'd rush to get ready. There wasn't nothing to hold me back. The night that my 21-year-old wife got saved at a missions conference or a uh, youth camp that I was preaching at, she comes down the aisle, preacher's wife, the guest preacher's wife. She comes down the aisle and says, I'm lost. And I'm like, you're what? And we were out in the backwoods of Mississippi, so she could have just been lost, not knowing where she's at. She says, I'm lost. And I was like, are you sure? She goes, I'm sure. And she says, I'm not going to hell for anybody. I don't care what people say. I don't care what people think. I'm not going to hell for anybody or what they feel about me or what they think about me or what they're going to say. I'm not going to hell for anybody. She didn't want to miss her opportunity. God says, here it is. I'm giving you, I'm giving you the opportunity. What are you going to do with that this morning? If you'll notice, I'm going to read this for you before we close. Verse 19 he says, this is what you should have done. Watch verse 20, the next three words. And Elisha died. And Elisha died. That opportunity was over. I don't know if the king realized he would not get that chance again. But wait a minute, give me the arrows back and this time I'll go to town with it. I'll make sure, just give me another shot. It was over. Elisha's dead. The chance is gone. The opportunities missed you will be defeated by the Syrians. I want you to know that there comes a time where the opportunity is over. Elisha dies. And you missed your chance. I beg you this morning, don't miss your chance to be saved. God's offering you the opportunity to be saved, to have a home in heaven, and become a child of God. If you're saved here this morning, can I ask you something? Could you do more? Are you taking the minimal option? Yeah, I came to church today. I read my Bible today. We can't offer minimal and ask for mighty. It's not going to happen. Why don't we decide this morning, you know what, I'm not going to miss this opportunity. I'm going to make up my mind today that I'm going to do more. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Let's stand together. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed.